Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision making during a racial revolution, sponsored by Fido Mobile, whose financial contribution we're thankful for. Why? Because it enables us to reach more people than ever before. Stay tuned as we talk Canadian news and black issues on a regular basis. And if you support our work to keep you informed, you know what to do. Subscribe. Today on The Drip, we're joined by Floyd Kane, the creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Digstown. Digstown is an authentic legal drama that highlights the very real inequities that exist in the Canadian legal system and has never shied away from delving into issues of class, race, and gender, even changing policy in the process. For example, after years of lobbying, last season's birth alert story helped to call enough attention to the issue that a few weeks following the broadcast, the province of Nova Scotia dropped the controversial practice. Mm-hmm. One of the last Canadian provinces to do so. For those of you who are unfamiliar, birth alerts are notifications issued by child welfare agencies to local hospitals about pregnant people who they deem high risk. In turn, healthcare providers are required to alert welfare authorities when the subject comes to seek medical care or deliver the baby. This was done without the mother's consent, and often these newborns are taken or adopted upon birth. Floyd Kane started his career as an entertainment lawyer, working on productions like This Hour Has 22 Minutes and the Oscar-winning doc Bowling for Columbine. He transitioned into writing with his creation of the half-hour CBC drama North-South, which I admit I need to watch because it sounds mad interesting. Since that time, Kane has written for a range of series, as well as producing several feature films, including the award-winning Across the Line, the incredible 25th year of Mitzi Bearclaw, and one of my personal favorites, Shake Hands with the Devil. In 2019, he was the recipient of the Sandy Ross Award from ACTRA Toronto, which recognizes the efforts of individuals striving to create a more inclusive media industry. Season 4 of Digstown will offer audiences a dramatic final chapter for main character Marcy Diggs, played by Vanessa Antoine. It started on Wednesday, October 12th at 8pm on CBC and CBC Gem. The six-episode finale season will be a tumultuous ride filled with searing emotional battles and transitions driven by trauma, where even though the victories are few and hard-fought, Marcy and her team continue to be relentless in their fight for justice right until the very end. The series finale will air soon on Wednesday, November 16th. And we're glad Floyd is here to chat about it. Pleasure to have you with us, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Just battling a cold, actually. Thank you. This is awesome. Well, we got plenty to discuss about the the excellent piece of work that is Dickstown. So why don't we jump right in? Let's do it. All right. All right. So 
within the Black community, Dickstown is heralded as being the only show on Canadian television that centers contemporary Black stories, Black families, and the nuances and diversity that exists within our communities. Personally, I think it has the capacity to influence a whole generation of Black lawyers in Canada and beyond. So was that a main goal of yours? And if not, what were your goals for the show as it relates to the audience? I think my goal with respect to the show was simply I'd never seen, like I'm originally from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. My family's been there for generations. I've never seen us on TV. Mm -hmm. It was really important for me that that opening image of, of season one of the show with Marcy surfing on Martinique Beach, yeah. which is in a very white community on the eastern shore of Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. It was very important for me to open the show with a black woman surfing on the Atlantic Ocean. You spent a lot of time on that scene. I actually quite enjoyed that process. Yeah, and and... And I think one of the things that I wanted to show the audience and wanted Canadians to see are Black people, Indigenous people in spaces that have been traditionally seen as white spaces. Yep. Yep. And I wanted the audience to see us in those spaces because we deserve to be in those spaces. Yep. Those spaces are ours. Yep. Do you know what I mean? A hundred percent. So so, so that's, that's really... When I, when I was thinking about the show, that was more so the focus of the show. I mean, I, I, my hope, obviously, is that if it inspires somebody to go to law school or, you know, help out of their community, then that's, that's icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. But for me, it, it was the broader notion of I want, to, I want to make an aspirational show where we see us in ways that we never get to see us on TV. Yes, quite literally, like Black people, Black women in particular, not only can Black people swim, we can actually, you know, effectively control the water. We can ride the waves, fam. Yeah, we can conquer the ocean. Absolutely. I loved that. Loved it. So on this show, on The Drip, we talk a lot about how it's almost impossible to separate Blackness from politics because our existence can't really be easily separated from our fight against anti-Black racism. Digstown has, I think, once again proven us right. Can you speak a bit to the birth alert storyline and how that came about? Sure. Every season of the show, the writers convene. We start to talk about what are the stories that we want to tell. I typically come to the table with like a list of potential stories and we started debating, discussing what would be a great take for us in terms of doing something around the child welfare system. Mm -hmm. And one of our writers who is an Indigenous woman, she talked about this whole practice of birth alerts. And that was what inspired me to start doing the research and looking at Nova Scotia specifically in terms of birth alerts. And that's when we realized that Nova Scotia was one of the few places that still had that practice in place. And we then decided, let's do this story and let's talk and let's get people talking about this. Mm -hmm. And can you walk us through just for folks who may not know what happened afterwards to get the province to get rid of the practice, to abandon the practice? 
Yeah, sure. And, and, and uh, just to be clear, like, I, I mean, I'm making a TV show, <laughs> so I, 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 I don't want to take away from the work that lots of activists have been doing on the ground in Nova Scotia to get, get yeah. practice abolished for years. That's right. uh, what I will say is that, you know, we, we did the episode, it came out and there was a, the, we were doing quite a few interviews around the, the topic of birth alerts and basically within like i think three or four weeks of the episode airing the government announced and this and this is after the file had been sitting stale for like you know maybe four or five months you know after after the show was released uh there was an announcement made that they were getting rid of the practice completely shows that art can be absolutely used in the right manner to uh, to push for advocacy. Yeah, for sure. and to illustrate impact, right? To illustrate the impact on actual human beings and, and their lives, yep. yeah. Yep. So, so Floyd, as we discussed already, you were a lawyer before becoming a writer, creator, executive producer, and showrunner. So why'd you ditch the courtroom for showbiz? And are there any other shows out there that maybe demonstrated that there was an appetite for a show like Digstown here in Canada that made you feel it could work. So I'm thinking of like the good wife, the good fight. Any of those come to mind or is it just me? Uh, no, look, I, I, I felt that, well, first of all, I felt like the, there were like, to me, like I love legal dramas. Yeah. My favorite legal show ever is The Practice. Wow. Um, the reason why I like that show is because it was one of the few shows where the clients were working class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that I felt like that notion of interrogating how interacting with the law impacts people who are economically disadvantaged, mm-hmm. uh, like how that is very different from somebody who has tons of money. Yeah. And so I so I really wanted to explore that. And so, but the practice is probably the closest in terms of the shows that I would say that's that was a bit of the inspiration for what we were doing. Yeah. Um in terms of like why did I leave why did, why did I stop practicing law to uh become a writer? It I mean it's very simple. I I probably would be like, you know, sitting in a rehab somewhere if I would have continued to be a lawyer, you know, it's just, cause it's just, it was just not like for me, like I, I've wanted to write my whole life. Hmm. Right. I've been writing since I probably since I was in grade eight. So the journey to my career is a very unique and interesting one, just because I cut like, you know, I was working in politics and then I, ended up working for this in-house for this entertainment company in Nova Scotia uh, called Salter Street Films, which produced This Hour's 22 Minutes. Mm-hmm. Salter doesn't exist anymore. Um, the show continues to keep going. Yes, um, and then, you know, I, you know, I ended up working within several variations of that company until like, you know, my son was three years old. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was sort of was like, what am I doing? Right? Like I'm killing myself working like, you know, 14 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Plus I'm going home at night and trying to write. 
And it just felt like, what am I doing? Yeah. Like, you know, why am I unwilling to go all take in. a risk? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. you know, and it's this funny thing, right? Because I grew up, I grew up poor. Yeah. And that whole like that specter of, you know, always worrying about being back there, mm. you know, even after, even after you've achieved some success oh, yeah. and you're making a good living, so you're, you're still thinking about that. So right. Real. And so, so that was the thing. And, and, but finally I had to kind of just say, okay, how much money can I live off of? Right. Yeah. You know, my, my wife and I, we, we, we have a, like a, a tiny house in the East end Toronto and we just kind of like, she, she wasn't sure about her job at the time. And so I was like, okay, if I spend this much of my savings on a yearly basis, this covers my mortgage, this covers everything else. And I, and we can do this. And mm-hmm. so that's what I did. So, and then, you know, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and, you know, ended up making Across the Line, which was my first feature film. And then it's like, from that point on, then Digstown happened and, you know, it paid off. Like that's like, so, so yeah, just like being an entertainment lawyer, which is what I, I practice. It's extremely hard work. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, and it's hard because you have to be somebody who like, I love negotiating. I love that part of the job, (laughs) but what I don't like is, I mean, I, I don't like the bullshit. Yeah, right. You. Like I, I don't, I, I don't like, I don't like it when you're getting calls from actors at seven thirty in the morning, you know, screaming at you about their paycheck mm-hmm. when they when they know you're not the person responsible for their paycheck. Mm-hmm. I don't like when I'm negotiating with people who they just like the game of you know, let's see how I can push this person's buttons. Yeah. Because I don't, I, or the yelling, like, I don't like, I mean, that's the other thing that happens. Like there's so, it's so often that lawyers, it's just, they're yelling for nothing. It's just performative. (laughs) And, and you just realize it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not here for this. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, that grew really tiresome. It's actually interesting because that's not the direction that I was going with that question, but I think you bring, bring up two very good points. One is that you have to be tenacious to continue to go after what you want, even if you face challenges, major challenges. And sometimes those challenges manifest, and I'm speaking from experience here, as as you were talking there, Floyd, I said, this is, I, I know what he's talking about. Sometimes the challenge manifests in having two directions in front of you. You know what direction you want to take but you're afraid mm-hmm. to take that direction. I, my personal experience was, you know, prior to being, in government and community development circles, I was in business development, making lots of money. Great. But that's not where I wanted to be. And similar to what you said, it was killing me. It was killing me. 2019 is when I made the choice to finally switch over and focus on what I truly wanted. It was scary and there was a lot of sacrifices, but things are moving in the right direction. So again, back to what I said prior and hearkening to what you said, Floyd, if you got something you want, you got to go for it, man. I appreciate that messaging wholeheartedly. Let's let's talk about Marcy and her character development. I I appreciated her intellect, her poise, her tenacity, her drive to help others, and her sense of accountability. Her sense of accountability was huge to me, in fact. Where did she come from? 
I mean, did you draw inspiration for her character from someone you met in law school, your wife maybe, elsewhere, or is she fictional? Um, Marcy is a work of fiction. I mean, she's like, here's here's what I'll say about Marcy. Mm -hmm. What enables me to write a character like Marcy is the fact that, you know, I have, I mean, the reality is I'm only in my spot because of, you know, the generosity of several women mm -hmm. who I, I've met over the course of my life. Mm -hmm. um, predominantly, those women have been Black, starting with my mother, uh, then starting with my one of my aunts, who was an executive at Bank of Montreal, who bought me my first typewriter, and then, like, just going through, like, you know, I have, like, I come from a huge family, so I have, like, 15 aunts and uncles on one side and 17 on the other. So there's a lot of women, a lot of black women and lots of black women who they're all different. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like they're all like these individuals who are on, like they, they kind of go across the spectrum of economic class, yeah. you know, education, like, like what they think of how they see the world. And that's, really interesting to me to me and interesting for me to take from them and to bring that to marcy right mm -hmm. and i mean i know you know i have a very good friend in nova scotia who is you know she's a corporate lawyer mm -hmm. and then i have a couple of good friends who are now judges who are legal aid lawyers who mm -hmm. are black females so it's like she's this amalgam of people who i've met but the truth is she's also, she's also she's also some of me right because there's also that i had a very formative experience when i was like 18 when i went to martinique beach for the first time mm -hmm. and i just remembered standing on the beach thinking why have i never been here what yep why is this not a place where we came all the time. It's like a half hour drive from where I grew up. And so, so it's just, I feel like, like there's a lot of like, when, I mean, every writer says this, it's like you, I bring a lot of myself to that character. Mm -hmm. Right. But she's also all of these like amazing women who I've had the experience to, to, you know, have them be part of my journey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, I want to delve a little deeper. I, I found it interesting that you had Marcy. She, she initially was this, you know, high-flying corporate lawyer, Eminem. Things happen. We'll just, for those who haven't watched the show, things happen between her ex and other family member. She leaves for a bit. She comes back and now she's working at Legal Aid. Now, is, is it... Why did you want to have that framing included? Did you, I mean, you kind of touched on including perspectives from, you know, whether, when you, whether we want to call it working class people or whatever, but why did you want to have her in particular, Marcy, have that dichotomy, that professional dichotomy? The reason for that is because I felt like Marcy, Marcy had forgotten herself. Ooh. Ooh. When you're in that world, and when you you're operating at that level, 
you can start to think, well, this is great. I'm working for this giant law firm. I can bring my family in here and I can get access. I can get their wills drafted and I can get their help, get them get advice on their, on their real estate transactions and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I think Marcy thought when her aunt has this situation and she brings her into Eminem, the mm -hmm. large law firm that she works at, she believes that, oh, they'll get her out of this. We'll take care of everything. Because this will be stellar representation. This is my family. They'll treat her like family. Mm. And that's not what happens. Nope. And I feel like that's a wake-up call for her, yeah. that she has to do more. Thus, she goes to legal aid. Yep, yep, yep. I hear that. Love that. I, I want to go a little bit off script and ask, I'm thinking really deep about this this conversation that we're having and your experience with that that particular beach and that sense of place, belonging, not belonging. And it makes me think about uh, what's been happening with Africville and that as a a place, a space that, that the Black community felt they had that belonged to them and the kind of series of things that either, either the province or the city, the city. The city has been doing to erase that. And I know that this, this doesn't have to do with, with Digstown, but this is a, a political issue that I, I think makes Digstown even more almost re required viewing because it helps to, to expose us to some of those same themes. So anyway, I guess my, my question is, what are your thoughts on Africville and what is something that you think uh, black Canadians everywhere should should know about environmental racism, geographic racism, and the the effect that it's had on Afro Indigenous folks in the in the, in the Atlantic and the Americas. It's it's all of that, right? Like everything you just said, like the in the geographic racism, the environmental racism. It's all of that and more. I mean, I will say that like we did an episode of the show around Africville in season three um, that really was about looking at the impact of what happens when your community has been destroyed and your family is left decimated as a result of that destruction and what that, and yeah. what that can lead to. And that was really, it was really important for me to do that episode because when I was a kid, like when I was in my twenties, I worked, I worked at a law firm just doing their bookkeeping. And I remember going through the files and reading about one of their clients and just this person had been from Africville. Their story was gut wrenching and it was all, you could trace it all back to the destruction of this community. And I think, what's like, I grew up in an all black community. So for me, I feel like having that sense of place is very important of home. But at the same time, you also recognize the small things that happen in black communities versus white communities. So mm -hmm. for example, it's a small thing. You drive through a white suburb, the speed limit will be 30. Mm -hmm. 
you drive through a black suburb, the speed limit's 50 or 60. Mm -hmm. Oh. Right? And, and this is how it was when I was growing up. And so just recently, I noticed that they've, they've reduced the speed limit in my community that I grew up in. Just a small thing. Yeah. But, but, but it's just, but it's the things that point to how, you know, just from a, a systemic point of view, how black communities are regarded versus white communities. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and, yeah. I, and I think that, you know, with Africville, you've got a lot of displaced people, a lot of trauma, a lot of intergenerational trauma that the kids today are still dealing with. I mean, it, it's, this is not something, this is not something that, you know, it goes away overnight. And frankly, it's not even something that we often know that this is what we're dealing with. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's until you actually go and you talk to you, you go talk to a therapist or if you have someone in your family who's close to you, who remembers the old times and you can talk to talk through your feelings with them. Like you just don't know. Right. I, I think, I think we really, we really don't like, I feel like there's a, especially in the, just especially with black males, I feel like there's a lot of resistance to being emotionally vulnerable. Agreed. And I feel like there's, we are, we're at a place where, you know, I'll call my mom and my mom will tell me like, you know, she, every week she's like, so-and-so has been shot or there's been another shooting, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, what is going on? What the hell? And and it but but and the thing is, if we actually look at it, right, it's just about it's about this whole idea of intergenerational trauma, which we have we which we have yet to explore. Man, don't you just love when positive black stories are centered and given the spotlight they deserve? Me too. We sincerely hope you've been enjoying part one of our conversation with Floyd Kane, the creator of Dickstown, which by the way is the only Canadian TV series telling contemporary black stories today. But the convo ain't done yet, so be sure to take in part two, and as always, thanks for listening. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.